coming into Hebrews is rather hard. I've done devotions on Hebrews before, so there's some things I can look at in my devotions and go, okay, here's some of the insight that I may have gotten out of it, but I got to be honest. I mean, like, Hebrews really just has, like, one theme. And so to, like, come up every week and go, I'm going to talk every week about something in Hebrews. Hebrews just has one theme, really. I mean, even by the third chapter in, we're still talking about how great God is, how great Jesus Christ is. And, and they're really having to convince the Jews, right, because it's written to the Hebrews, to the Jewish people. So they're really having to convince the Jews. And, and it's very hard to, to come up here on a, on a Sunday and go, hey, Jesus is great. Uh, and you're like, duh, that's why I'm here. I mean, uh, so it's a very uh, unique uh, position that I'm placed in to try to come and bring you something so fresh and something new for you uh, when really it's just a steady theme is Jesus is awesome. And uh, really, that's it. I mean, like whether first literally one and first and second chapter, we're all about how Jesus is greater than the angels. And if we really dived into just the main theme of the third chapter is that he's greater than Moses, which is hard for them to comprehend because Moses has been the giver of the law. And he came down from Mount Sinai, and, and, and he carried them all the way to the promise. And while he didn't get to enter in, he got them there, which is very important, very important. And it showed you his faithfulness, his obedience. I mean, he is a patriarch of the faith. You could argue and say that the closest thing the Old Testament has to Jesus Christ is Moses, not Abraham. Abraham is an awesome example of obedience. But make no mistake... The mediator between man and God, Jesus Christ, is really seen in Moses. He's really seen. So, I mean, if there's ever a picture of what Christ is or who Christ is in the Old Testament, it's Moses. And the Hebrews know this. They know it. So, this is kind of the thing. I mean, that's really like, I mean, like, that's it, right? I could just say, hey, go home, let's have communion, call it a, call it a day. That's really the, the, the main meat of the chapter. But there are a few things that I did see, and I won't hold you long today, uh, but there are a few things that I did see that are worth sharing, things that we can apply uh, to our life. Uh, and if I was going to title any of this, which I try not to, especially as I'm tackling a book, because I really just want to bring out the truth that's already in a book. I don't, wanna, I don't want this to be like my thoughts, and I'm using Hebrew to back up my thoughts. I really want to kind of teach you in context of what it's saying so you can get out of it what you feel God or what you and God kind of connect out of it, uh, so to speak. So if I, if I were going to title something, I, I would write, A Faithful Work Begins in You. And then in others. That, that's really what kind of how I grabbed chapter 3 and the things that I saw and how he explained this idea of Moses is not as great as Jesus. Um, I'll never forget a phone call I, I got a few years ago from my youngest brother. I, I pulled into my house. Um, I, I, I had known my brother was going through some, some marriage issues and things like that. Some very difficult times in his life. Uh, he's always been kind of my kid brother. Uh, so to speak, you know, the kind of when we picked on and, you know, kind of beat up and, you know, if you're a brother, you know what I'm talking about. I mean, you kind of just, that's how brothers are, right? And you just kind of, I love on him and I love him, and, but let's, I mean, you know, he's my kid brother. You know, I'm always going to see me as bigger, stronger, more awesome, the whole thing, right? And, and, uh, and, but here's the thing, growing up, I was like the bad boy of the bunch, right? So I was always in trouble, never making good grades, uh, all, like I was known, but not in a good way. Whereas my youngest brothers, they were always very good at grades, very good at sports, very active, and a lot of people knew them as well. Now, unfortunately for them, they carry, you know, what, what spreads more quickly is a bad reputation rather than a good reputation, who knew, right? And apparently they were associated along with that. A lot of their youth was of how bad their older brother was. And, 
And so, like, they, that was a lot of struggle they had early on in their life. But one of the things that was very awkward about this phone call, because they've watched a huge transformation take place in my life. I mean, I went from a guy who came out of the Marine Corps and very lost in alcohol, very lost in drugs, uh, very lost in depression. And, and, uh, and even before that, just seeing the, the transformation uh, into this person who's found Christ. And is trying to work out salvation in his life. Who leaves some of those things behind. And who has found a wife. And who has committed himself to uh, a lasting relationship. And uh, one of which I believe we've been together like I think almost 22 years now. And uh, you know marriage has been a very easy thing for me. And mainly because our pursuit hadn't been of this idea that. And I've said this before. This idea that. Joy is my everything, and I'm not, it's not the idea for her that I am her everything. Jesus is our everything. And because we have this common interest, this common place that we're trying to get to, it's more like we're helping each other get to this place, and that causes us to work better as a team. And so that's really the, the secret to my marriage. Is, it's really it, you know. Uh, but like my brother doesn't, doesn't, at this point didn't know that. And so he's trying to make his marriage work on his own behalf. He's trying to muscle his way, strong will his way through a marriage. Um, it's very hard and very difficult uh, if you really don't have Jesus that really pushes you to forgive and pushes you to have mercy and pushes you to love one another in grace who is constantly the theme of your life. It's very hard to have a relationship that lasts without Jesus Christ. And, and so he calls me and, and, and I could tell he's frustrated. He feels hopeless, and, and he, he, I can tell he's saddened on the phone, and as he calls me, and he's, he's telling me what's going on with his marriage, he begins to say something to me that just rocks my world, because I just thought it would be somebody else. I had kind of given up the idea that I'm going to be able to witness to my brother, because I'd kind of done so over the years, and it just didn't, it seemed fruitless, and then this phone call happens, right, and he's like, I want what you have, and can I tell you, my heart broke for my brother, Man, for the first time in my life, here's the guy I always looked at. Did good grades, smart. He, man, he, he works at a place that I can't even tell you about for the government stuff. Does cool stuff, man, that is like classified and secret. And, I mean, I look at this guy. He's, he's a cool guy. Love my brother. He's a really cool guy. Love hanging around him. Love, love spending time with him. But, but I have something that you, like, mind blown, you know? And... And that night, I got to lead him. I said, man, it's just real simple. I just have Jesus. Like, that's it. There's no secret. You know this about me. Well, I, I want him to then. If that's all it is, then I want him. I said, you know what? It's more than lip service, Joe. And I begin to lead him and tell him and kind of disciple him in that moment the best I could. Like, it's about being faithful to God. God is always faithful to you, even when you're not. God will return to you the minute you return to him. Matter of fact, it, really the prodigal son story is not about the prodigal son. It's about the extravagant love of the father. That even in the sin of the son, right? There hadn't even been repentance yet, by the way. He runs out there to meet him, right? That hadn't even happened yet. The I'm sorry, God. I'm sorry, Dad, for wanting to just basically want your money, want your hands and not your heart, right? Hadn't happened yet, but God loved him anyway. ran out, right? So that's what I was kind of sharing with my brother. I have nothing. I got nothing that's going to help you save Jesus Christ. And he's my everything. You want to know? Life has been hard for me. 
But the one staple in my life has been Jesus Christ. The one thing that holds my marriage together is Jesus Christ. The one thing that holds me into this life is Jesus Christ. He is my Lord. And that night I led my brother to Jesus Christ. Now, he only came to that conclusion because he'd seen the power of Jesus in my life. Right? He'd witnessed firsthand deliverance of alcohol, firsthand deliverance of drugs, firsthand redemption. He'd seen it. He'd seen the process. It wasn't overnight either. But he watched the, the unfailing commitment to try. Like, I'm going to tell you, I messed up more times, right, than I can count. But the process of staying faithful, I had a rough night. I'm going to ask for forgiveness. I was that kid, you're always like, man, someday that kid in the altar that's there every Sunday is going to really get saved, and it's going to really take this time. You know, that's me, right? Need to be baptized like six times, you know, kind of one of these times this old man's really going to wash off, right? I mean, that's kind of how I was, and he saw that. He witnessed that in my life, right? And I think this is kind of where we begin as we talk about Moses and as we look into why Jesus is greater than Moses. I think this is where we begin in Hebrews, just in, in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 5. All right? And I'm only going to just hang with a couple of scriptures because I, I think we kind of got the idea. But let me just explain a little bit, of, just a few things to you this morning. Maybe I, can, maybe I can give you a little nugget. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 5. Moses was certainly faithful in God's house as a servant. His work was an illustration of the truths that God would reveal later. See, Moses' life pointed not only to God, but to the future life and sacrifice of Jesus Christ. He provided a model, both in the present life for the children of Israel and prophetically to other generations. We ever think about our life like that? Do we ever think that right now, we kind of got the idea that we present this, this idea, this, this way to live right now, right? But do you ever catch yourself talking about like maybe a good old day? Remember when they were like this? Remember when the church was like this? Can, do you think at that moment they, had a, they were cognitive that they were going to prophetically be the example for another generation, two or three down the line? Do you think your life is like that? I don't know that we think like that. That the way I live my life now is not only going to set an example for the pre, my, like my kids, but it's going, to set it, it's going to set the example for a generation I might never see. Do we even think like that? I'm not sure we do. Moses, I don't know that he thought like that, but he lived in such a way that not only was he an example to the current people he was having to lead, but he's still an example to us today, isn't he? And we're kind of still reading about his life. I'm challenged by that. Is my life providing such a work, such a model? When I reach the end of my time on earth, will it be said of me that I was certainly faithful? Am I walking in such a way that others physically can see that I have been in the presence of God? Can I tell you in Exodus 34, 29, it reads, When Moses came down from Mount Sinai carrying the two stone tablets inscribed with the terms of the covenant, he wasn't aware that his face had become radiant because he had spoken to the Lord. He didn't even know it. Wasn't it concern of his? He wasn't thinking if I hang out long enough and get this radiation thing going on that everybody else is going to see me light up like a glow stick and they'll know that I pray. He didn't even think like that. It's not why he was there. He didn't come down with the attitude of look at me. Look at me. Why can't you talk to God like me? 
Why aren't you like me? He didn't have that attitude. He was oblivious that his face was shining at all. He didn't even know. When we're with God in secret, God makes it known in public. You won't have to. Right? Man, we, I have, I have, I, I, some of you know this because it's just kind of been a pet peeve of mine lately. I, I have, I'm, I'm like at this place where I don't know if I'm just going to take the full year kind of to challenge this idea, but this idea that we just need to advertise and brand and sell and market everything that Jesus does. I just don't see it anywhere in the Bible. I see Jesus all the time telling people, don't tell anybody anything. Like he used like reverse psychology on us, right? Don't tell anybody nothing. That like for some reason worked automatically like in our brain we go tell everybody. Like I don't know why we do it, right? Because there's no town that you've ever lived in that didn't have gossip. Right? And as if Jesus does, like he knows, right? Hey, don't tell anybody, which means I've got to tell everybody. I don't know why, but that's what that means, right? Because secrets are way more valuable than just open knowledge. We tend to value that way more, right? As if we're in the club, so to speak, you know? Got a secret. Want to know it? You automatically feel my friend as soon as I say it. You can't help it. Right? And so, like, this has been a challenging aspect to me. Listen, I'm going to spend time with God in the Word. I'm going to spend time praying. I'm going to want our church to be that kind of church. And I don't think that we've got to brag on that. I don't think that we have to start a social media campaign to let everybody know how awesome we are. You don't need me to post 4,000 pictures on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook just saying how great we are. Man, if you're great, it'll just be known. When you're with God, your face will just shine. And let me tell you, though, here's the good and bad about that. Two things are going to happen. You're either going to be attracted or you're going to run away. Right? What did it say the children of Israel were when they saw him come down? In fear. I'm going to tell you, it's one or two. We're either going to be excited that you've been with God or we're going to run away because you've been with God. To stand with God And be with God will become obvious. You can't spend time with him without becoming like him. And in becoming like him, you will become what this world most desperately needs. They need need Jesus. And they need you to be Jesus. You know, I'm reading a book right now that talks about Jesus being the head. By the way, uh, if the feet don't get after it, the head doesn't go anywhere. If the hands don't start working, the head is crippled. Right? If we don't start tuning in to what the head is telling us to do, being the nervous system of the head. It's hard for us to be the body. We've got to be healthy in those areas. We've got to be in with the Lord. We have to be praying and a praying people. But I think there's something more here. Uh, The word work, uh, uh, his work was an illustration is what it says. It leads me to believe that there's something more than it's just my life being this this model. It's kind of almost, it's really more like a story. This lifelong interaction between me and Jesus becomes a narrative story for all people to see and read. Because my life is on display. As Paul would say, I am the fool on display for all you to see. My life becomes the narrative so you can see my embarrassments, my triumphs, the victories in my life, the, the, the punishments, the, uh, uh, the shame. All that becomes the narrative. Why? Because we see how Jesus interacts with it. When I'm in shame, what does Jesus come to do? He comes to lift me up, pick me up, and take me. When I am weak, he comes to be my strength, to be everything right. And who gets the glory in my story? Well, it ain't me because I need Jesus all the time. I need Jesus. It isn't going to be easier. 
No, there's always a cost. It's always going to come with a price. I don't know of any other time it doesn't come with a price. I looked up the word illustration in the Greek language, and the word that's used here, I'm kind of not surprised by this, but it's literally, it's mart, mart, martyr, and, and it has eon, mart, martyrion, right? And I'm, I'm, I'm a little excited about that word, but not that much because I know what it means, right? You know where we're getting that word. You know the word martyr when you hear it? Uh, it doesn't make us feel all warm inside, but I'm not shocked that the Bible uses it because we see it a lot. But it means this work, this, this, this story, this my life, this illustration is going to be for all to see, and it's going to be a tough road. Nowhere does the Bible promise you life's going to be easy. I know that somewhere there was a generation that taught that a lot from the pulpit. I don't know where they got it. I don't know where. I just don't see that in any of the apostles' life. Somebody forgot to tell the apostles they were supposed to get uh, wealthy and healthy. Somebody forgot to tell them that because they didn't get that memo. Right? They all like died. Persecution, poor, had nothing, clothes on their back. So, I mean, like that, it just, it's hard. The Christian life is hard. Does God, does God doesn't want you to have money? No, that's not true either. Look at Solomon. He's blessed beyond imagination. David's blessed beyond imagination. That's not it. God wants relationship. He wants you to love him more than all your stuff. He wants you to love him. Life will be hard because things will pull at you from all over. That's why it says it's going to be an illustration, going to be an example. Why? To who? Everybody else. Why? Because you were baptized. You went down one way and you came up the next. That's an outward profession of your faith. You are telling the world that Jesus is the narrative in your life. What's that mean? Well, it's just what I was saying. That God is going to take prevalent through all your ups and downs. They are going to see Jesus actively involved in your life. So that when you are down, God lifts you up. Right? That when you struggle, God comes to your need. That when you walk and do the things in obedience and live in Him, God blesses you. He's the narrative. Our life on display. It means that we're going to have to face all sorts of things, too. All, I mean, when you say the word martyr, we have to think about the things that encompasses. Ridicule, accusation, slander, hate, malcontent, possibly even death. And while it could sound noble and honorable, <laughs> it's still scary and terrifying. You know, I've had to separate from, uh, myself from my friends and family over the years. To follow Christ. You you've had to do that. It's tough. It's tough. People you love have to separate. Why? Because hard to be Christ around them. We either become like the hammer of God, which isn't good for us, or we feel hammered. <laughs> and so we've had to make decisions, right? Life's hard. It's hard. Whether I live to be 120 or whether I die tomorrow, my goal is to stand with Moses and the apostles and be able to say that by the strength of God, my life has a single focus, one mission, that the whole world would know Jesus is Lord. That's it. That's the theme of my life. That's why my brother would call me. That's why God would call me to pastor because I have no other, no other mission in life, no other purpose in life. The reason I have multiple jobs and not just one job is that I want to go from 8 to 5 because I care more about the church and what God's got to do with God's people than I care about working. My wife knows it, doesn't like it. 
There's not a lot of security in that. But then again, I'll be honest with you. Uh, if you're going to follow God fully, God is your security and your faith will be tested. Know that. Know that. And I think this is your mission as well. But before I get there, before I can even come to you, right, before I can even talk to you about things like prayer and your face shining and all those things, right, I've got to make sure that my heart's right. Because the greatest pitfall any one of us have is to stumble out there and begin to do ministry, begin to do something when we're not right. Before I can even move on to the next chapter, one of the things as we get down there towards the end of Hebrews in verse 12, listen to this as it begins to, to, to close out in verse 12. He says, be careful then, dear brothers and sisters. Make sure that your own hearts are not evil and unbelieving, turning, away, uh, turning you away from the living God. So this scripture reminds me that I'm supposed to deal with my heart first. Right? This work... This illustration of God, this narrative of God that's going to happen in my life. Before I can become a Moses leading people towards God, I've got to make sure that my heart is right. Make sure my heart is right. My heart is the first problem. My heart struggles enough on its own that if I don't get it right, I won't be much good to anyone else. And listen how Jesus dealt with this personally in Matthew 7. Verses 1 through 5, he says, do not judge others and you will not be judged. For you, listen, now most people stop right there and never finish the sentence. It's probably one of the most misquoted out of context places in the Bible. For you will be treated as, as you treat others. The standard you use in judging is the standard by which you will be judged. And why worry about a speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own? How can you think of saying to your friend, let me help you get rid of that speck in your eye when you can't see past the log in your own eye? Hypocrite. First get rid of the log in your own eye, then you will see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. Too many people stop at that very first verse. And never read anything else. And to those people, I'd ask, what would verse 3 say? Verse 3 says, the standard you use in, in judging is the standard by which you will be judged. The question is not, don't judge, because that you do. Everybody judges. Let's just get that out. Every Christian judges, or you would not have friends. And one of the things I explained to this, to the seven, how do you explain this to the seventh grader? Do you have friends? Yes. What are the characters you look for in friends? So when you look at a person, you're judging them based off the characters you're looking for. You're looking for those character attributes. You're looking for honesty, integrity, love, patience, grace. Yeah. Yeah, I sure am. So you're judging them. You're judging them based off those characteristic traits. Yes. And they'll openly admit that. <laughs> but it's usually what happens when people say don't judge me is because they're usually doing something wrong. All judging also, usually what follows judging is correction. Every parent in here, you have corrected your child, which means you have judged them. You found them guilty. And guess what guilty did? It hurt you. Guilty hurts, right? We all judge. <laughs> we all judge. So the, when it says, don't judge, lest you be judged, but then in verse 3 it says, by the standard that you judge, so it's not like, or you're not actually going to judge ever. It's not that. God said, all right, the standard by which you judge. You will judge. You will judge people. You will. 
But the, but the standard needs to be this is what he's saying, right? The standard, who we do business, think about this, who we have our friends, who we do business with, we all judge. You would not do business with a criminal. And wouldn't he have the ability to say, why are you judging me? Because you're past, man. <laughs> it shows that you're a th- like Judas. Judas, probably not going to be the guy I hire as our financial guy, right? Totally a thief, cares more about what's in the money than anything else. Now, Jesus hired him. I'm sure we'd fire Jesus for hiring Judas because we'd already judge Jesus. Don't lie. We would. We judge people based off their character. We judge people based off their reputation. We don't want our kids hanging around somebody that has a reputation like that, and we've already judged just like that. It's not dumb to judge, by the way. A lot of your judgment is sound, and some is not. Jesus says standard by which you judge. Have a standard, a godly standard. What is the godly standard? Well, I think he says that. I think he declares what the godly standard is. your heart right? You got, have you got the log out of your own eye before you start criticizing someone else? By the way, if you have a bad reputation and you're talking about somebody else has a bad reputation, that's what he's talking about. That's not sound judgment. That's sin. That's not sound judgment. That's sin. Jesus warns us against casting bad judgment of not giving people or not giving people in the way we would want to be judged. He makes this point in the next few sentences by describing this scenario where you're trying to con- uh, correct someone by st- and st- while you're still struggling yourself. So it's not a question of who we, who we judge. It's more like, are our hearts prepared? Are our hearts ready? Have we met with God? Are we portraying grace, love, and mercy the same which we are judged by? Because by the way, one of the reasons you were here this morning is because you can have a, this awful week where you could have sinned. But you come here, why? Because who forgives you? Jesus, who instead of judging you in that moment as evil and wicked as your heart rightfully is, says, I love you, and I will give you grace, and I will give you mercy. And what has that done to you? It's attracted you to him. Why? Because he's the friend that you're not even. Right? He's, he is the friend that you're not. He's the guy that regardless of your bad reputation, loves you. Regardless of your poor judgment for others, loves you. Grace, mercy, right? He sees clearly, by the way, he has no log in his eye, and he still gives you mercy, grace. Still, are we judging like Christ, who's poured out patience with you like a river? How come this doesn't resonate with people more? How much more loving could we be if the correction of our own heart became the center of our own attention? If that was the thing we were concerned about, how much more loving could we be? It would seem to be that if I truly want to help my brothers and sisters, which is everybody, I should really worry about getting my heart right first. So before I go judging, which is what Jesus is saying, before I go judging others, what would I really want in return? I would want grace. I would want another chance. What does God offer? Grace and another chance. What if they do the same things over and over, over and over? Listen, it doesn't mean don't be wise, but you don't have to be mean. Sometimes correction is simply loving somebody and saying no. 
Like this is the level of our relationship has to be. I love you. I will always talk in the most highest respect of you. But there has to be a line now because of wisdom. Wisdom. It's not judging. I'm not going to say that God can't pour out grace or that you can't change. So I'm going to give you respect because I believe it's possible. Right? And how do we know it's possible? Because we who are in Christ should know. We should know. How come this doesn't resonate? And I, and I know it's not easy. It's our nature to look at others and judge our life next to theirs. Right? It's not right, but we do it. Don't lie. It doesn't take much to find others who struggle worse than we do. Or find people that we are just simply better than. Amen. Or, you know, just people that we, we've lived, done things... You know, we say, well, I'm way more Christian, or I'm way more godly, or I'm way, you know, we're rednecks. We say gooder, way gooder, right? But the thing I better be doing is getting my heart right with God. I, I better have my heart right with God. If I don't, I will not be living in the fullest, and I'm sure I won't be a help to anyone around me. You know, what, you know, by the way, the next scripture there in Hebrews 3 and 13, it reads under the assumption that you're working on your heart when it says this. This is the next sentence, right? You must warn each other every day while it is still today so that none of you will be deceived by sin and hardened against God. From verse 12 that says, work on your heart first to verse 13 says, now help others. Right? Moses went in the desert. And he's there for a long time, lived a long time, found a wife, found a living, right? Before God wakes him up, right? Took a while to get some of that Egyptian out of him, all right? All that education out of him, right? And then God has him, and he's got him out there to himself. And God begins to build him up and get his heart right because he was a little bitter, right? He tried to take and, and, and deliver them once before. He, you know, by the way, right? We understand that when he murdered the Egyptian, that was him in the flesh trying to make this thing right. I'll, I'll take Israel out of here. I'll deliver them from Egypt by my own hands. His heart wasn't right. You know, you can have good intentions and still make bad judgment. So God takes him out there and he feels like a failure. Finally. I think the F in failure should be like that. Finally. Finally. You failed enough that you'll come to me and listen. And that's what happens, right? Burning Bush speaks. He has this wonderful moment that we have just, we love. Come on, man. Burning Bush. Thing doesn't, really doesn't, it's not on fire, but it's on fire. It's a paradox. And he has this moment with God where God begins to tell him, just obey. Just listen and obey. <clears throat> and he struggles there, right? Well, I can't talk. Who made the mouth, man? You got no more excuses. I'm going to just take all your excuses and throw them away. You got no more excuses. Just obey. Just do what I say. Just do it, right? It took a long time for him to get there, a long time. But God's way eventually prevails, right? And all his time with God that nobody ever saw, right, eventually shows up to where everybody sees. This man, Moses, who at one time, laid hands on the Egyptians, trying to kill them on the way out, right? Now decides the only way to go in and get them is with a wooden staff. That's it. He didn't lay a hand on anyone. Right? It's totally not how we think. 
right? But he had to go away to get his heart right. For God to be able to touch him and, and, and work with him, he had to get his right. Then what was he able to do? Help everybody else. Help everybody else. I don't think, I don't really think it's any clearer. Proverbs 27, 17 says, iron sharpens iron, so a friend sharpens a friend. If we'll be right with the Lord, we'll help each other be right. Because judgment does happen. It does, man. And I'm going to tell you in the church, it looks like correction. And nobody likes correction. I got spanked from the time I was in first grade to the time I graduated. I was an 18-year-old adult being whipped with a paddle. Made me a better guy. Some people, man, we just only understand physical punishment. You know, I told somebody the other day, you know what helped my mouth? And they like knew what I was going to say. They said, punch in the face. I go, yep. I learned how to not speak so much when other guys taught me that a punch in the face when I talk too much. This is a hurtful lesson, by the way. Did not like being punched in the face. You know what I learned? I learned how to keep my mouth shut at the right times. And listen, it's not a punch in the face for everybody. Right? But it's, it's kind of that moment, right? You know it in life where God's trying to get your heart right and a judgment has occurred and now correction begins to take place because that's what correction feels like, all right? It feels like a punch in the face. It hurts. It kind of bruises our ego. Wait a minute, I thought I was all that great. Turns out I'm not. Right? It hurts our ego. And so we like refuse correction. That's why the church is crazy at times. That's why the church doesn't function right when it comes to Pentecost sometimes. That's why the church doesn't function right just and stays unhealthy because you have a lot of leaders that are always scared to correct. Because somebody pulls out that scripture because we don't know our Bible and we say, don't judge me. He was judging me. Yes. You profess to know Jesus. Act like it. Act like it. Hey, I had a conversation. This is what I'm talking about. I had a conversation. Totally not my notes. Lord, forgive me if I'm out of place. But this conversation yesterday, the basketball uh, group there at SMU, they just got caught cheating again. Not just basketball. They get caught cheating all the time. But they, they got caught cheating in basketball. They got leveled a whole bunch of fines and punishment. Like, I think they shut down the basketball season for this year. The coach has been suspended nine games for next year. And they shut down nine. They levied nine scholarships from them. Huge punishment for cheating. Right? And one of the guys that I was uh, uh, working with, he said, he said, man, those Methodists. And I, all I could think was, oh, my gosh. He's right. He's right. They represent the church. They represent the church. You know, there's a, you know, one of the things we begin to talk about, there's a giant LGBT community, homosexual community at Baylor. Oh, my gosh. And you know why that's allowed to be there? You know why that's there? Because they need the funding. And when, when they take the money from the state, because truthfully, they're hurting as a Christian finance institution. Truthfully. When they take that money from the state, they have to let anybody in. All your principles and values, because we need a new stadium. Because we want a bigger and better campus. We want to be able to pay our teachers their value. Some, listen, there are some really good reasons behind it. The stadium, yeah, that's, that's an easy shot. But some of the teachers probably do need a fair wage. 
there's a lot of good things that are happening there too. So let's not take it away at all. It's not all bad. But make, make no mistake, this is where the law gets in our eye. Man. This is how people look at us. And so shouldn't we correct them? Yes, if we love them, we will. Now, let's flip that coin. Somebody who doesn't know Jesus. How are you going to look at them? How are you going to judge that person? If they don't know Jesus, then maybe instead of judging them, we're there to bring the gospel to them. And we won't have to. Like that, that's, that'll, that'll be what makes us the bearer of good news. Right? Blessed are those, blessed are those who bring the gospel, right? Blessed are the feet of those who bring the gospel. Why? Because they are the bearer of good news. They don't bring judgment with them. They bring grace. Right? Because we see that they don't know Jesus. You don't know Jesus. You don't know the church. You've never grown up. Like somebody like me where you don't know it. So let me share with you something that's very awesome. Like this whole part of your life, which by the way, you do not have to tell somebody who's living in sin, right, the, the value of living in sin. Sin is in and of itself has built into it a punishment. If you do things that are sinful, you already know this as Christians, if you do things that are sinful, would you agree with me that there are punishments that you know that you will reap because you've sowed it? Right? You already know it. So why would I have to judge the unsaved? If they are living in sin, think about the homosexual. I don't have to convince them by the Bible that it's wrong. Sin will do it. I was telling somebody the other day, why would I have to worry about the homosexual community? Can they reproduce themselves? No. It's unnatural. They cannot. So unless they convert people, there is no future for them. There's none. Because sin is death. I don't need to judge them. I need to give them grace because I know where that leads. Right? Because what am I? I'm a sinner who's been saved by grace. I know that road too well. I know it too well. I know where sin leads. I know the destruction of sin in life. I don't have to be judgmental. It will, it will cast judgment all by itself. It will teach you the right way all by itself. It will teach you the unfruitfulness of a lifestyle of sin. Oh, but it's fleeting pleasure for the moment, the Bible says. Uh-huh, for a moment. And how long is that moment? I don't know. For some of it is probably longer than others. There are some that will perish their whole life away, and that's good enough. They've settled for a life of sin. Man, I can't help everybody. I'm just here to help out the ones God tells me to help. I'm here to come down off the mountain and my face shine. That's what I'm here to do. What are you here to do? Man, I'll tell you one thing that's guaranteed. First of all, you're here to get your heart right with God. Second, and you're here to help others get their heart right with God. That's a guaranteed, Right? And what better yet is what this Hebrews writers is telling us. What better yet? You have Christ. Who needs Moses to look at anymore? You don't need him. Moses didn't live a perfect life. He struggled in the flesh. We see it throughout his life. He struggled. He had issues, man. There were times where he got in trouble too, by the way. But we have Christ. He is our example. He can make our hearts right. We can fix our eyes on him and come into the knowledge of what life really is. So we need to help each other. I love the Hebrew writer. He says, uh, he brings like some like a fear into this. He says, while it's still today, as if tomorrow isn't promised. As if tomorrow isn't promised. Do we make people's lives better or worse? 
Jesus said that we're to be the salt of the earth. Well, you folks have tasted salt. Just a little is all it takes. You put too much and you ruin it. So this idea that we need to be grandiose, right? Like everybody just needs to be a Christian. I'm not sure the earth would benefit from that. I think it needs just a little at a time. Just a little at a time. And God knows the seasons. Does that mean we don't evangelize? Do not read into any of that. What I'm saying is it doesn't take much to make the whole thing taste great. Doesn't take much. While it's still today. You know, in this year alone, we've seen attacks on a few major fronts of Christianity. Who watched in horror as ISIS slaughtered the Egyptian Christians? And they literally beheaded them right there on Al Jazeera. We witnessed firsthand a post-Christian America as, as, as a homosexual, homosexuality is now found to be equal in a marriage covenant. Listen, that was established from the beginning of time. And currently we watch the news to see this lone gunman here at Oregon Community College walk right up to his victims one by ones and ask them if they're a Christian. And if you haven't heard that, I would encourage you to go maybe find the story about and see that uh, as it happened. He literally went up to them one by one Ask them if they're a Christian. If there's a Christian, they shot them in the head. And if they weren't, he shot them in like the gut or the leg or something like that. Nine people were killed. I think 20 or something were wounded. Man, are we iron sharpening iron? Because I hope so. There's a future coming in our Christianity where it's going to be tested and we're going to be placed in the forging fires. Man, we draw closer with every passing day. We're going to be asked, uh, uh, we are going to be mocked, and we're going uh, to seem outdated and out of place. But the Hebrew author reminds us in verse 13, you must warn each other every day while it is still today. While we still have the opportunity to worship in freedom, while we still have the opportunity to be Christ to our neighbors, while we still have this day, we are to encourage one another, to lift up one another, to encourage us to what? Not to have this evil and wicked, unbelieving heart, but to believe God is who He says He is and be faithful to that call. There will come a day when it's no longer safe for us. There will come a day when we won't be able to build each other up as we once did. The warning from the Hebrew writer is one that places the importance on living every day as if it's your last. While it's still today. Let's work on loving each other. While it's still today, let's fellowship with one another and encourage one another. While it's still today, let's be family. Let's be family with one another. Brothers and sisters, for the greater cause, the greater purpose of Jesus Christ, we are going to heaven with each other. If we can't live with each other down here, how hard is it going to be there? (laughs) I usually tell people, you haven't been Christian long unless you really didn't dislike people you're actually going to heaven with. I mean, you know, because let's just face it, I love my brother, but I might have kicked him out of a window or two. We were mean to each other. Sometimes it's for us, some of us, man, we're so, our love is so distorted, it's the only way we know how to show our love. That's a whole other sermon. While it's still today, may we be family with each other. May we join Christ with each other and welcome people with open arms, loving arms, and correction. But listen, only when needed. Only when prayer gives way to that is the way. Right? Correction is love. Because by the way, if it's not, then you've been abusing your kids for a long time. Correction is love. But we only, we still correct our, like when we correct our kids, 
there's a lot of things that they get, I know, get away with, right? Why do they get away with it? Because we love them. We'd rather not correct them if we didn't have to. Amen. Same things in the church. Same things in the church. We struggle to correct people in the church because we're so, I don't, would rather not to. But sometimes there's no other way. Sometimes we have to confront. Sometimes we have to say these. Sometimes we have to do these things, right? But make no mistake. Let me back that up. But, but our hearts better be right first before we start stepping out trying to correct somebody else. Better have all them logs out of our eyes before we start messing with the specks in others. All right? That's the danger here. That's the danger. Give grace like you want grace. Love people like you want to be loved. Right? Are these things not the gospel? Man, what I'm teaching you right here is Sermon on the Mount. Standard Jesus living. That's what I'm teaching you today. That's what I believe, man, when we look at Moses and what he's trying to tell us about Jesus being greater. This is how Jesus is greater. How is he greater than Moses? You know, because there are times where Moses gets mad. He broke the stones, by the way. I mean, if you spent that much time up in prayer, up on a mountain, to carry some big, gigantic rocks back all the way to just, he breaks them right as he gets down there and sees them in sin. I mean, like, I would have think that it held more value than that. Like, okay, hang on. I'd have put them down nicely. That's just me. Looking back at the story, but I, the anger of Moses. He just breaks that thing, man. Correction. We need to love correctly. We see Moses, the anger. We see the, the frustration. We see all the things that he gets wrong. But you don't see that with Christ because he's greater than Moses. He's greater than the angels. And if Jesus is in us and we are the representation of Jesus Christ upon this earth, how much more so should we be graceful and loving and caring and slow to correct? Oh, I promise you, sin has in and of its own self its own rewards, and they are not good. You will not have to worry about some of those things. We need to be slow in those things, slow to anger. You know the, you know the stuff. I'm not teaching anything new. I'm not teaching anything new. Stand to your feet this morning. This morning, I know that we're going to need some prayer this morning because I don't think we can talk about this kind of stuff. I don't think we can deal with this kind of stuff uh, without needing some prayer because I know that some of us are going to struggle there. Some of us struggle when it comes to correction and judgment. We do. Hey, man, some of you, some of you like need to pray for other people, man. You know they just got bad judgment. You, know, you can tell that just by their friends and everybody else they hang around. They're like, hey, their judgment's poor. I mean, that's just how it is. And we need to be praying for one another. We need to pray for those who can't pray for themselves. That's what the body of Christ does. It says Jesus is constantly interceding before the throne. Who do you think he's interceding for? Everyone to whom he paid his life to. And to all those he's still calling in. Deep cries out to deep. He's still calling. To children who've yet been born, Jesus is calling. Come to me. Come to me. Still calling. This morning, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray, but if you need prayer in this area this morning, I want you to come forward and let's pray for you. If, if, you, if you need help in that area, you need more grace, you need more love, man, come on, man. Find, find a place. Maybe it's right where you're at to sit down and just pray right there and, and have a moment. But I, I'm going to have them put on some music and, and, and give us just a few minutes there. And, and this is not, we're not leaving yet. But I, I want to give us a little moment here 
to be right with the Lord. And maybe you've judged someone incorrectly. Maybe you're quick to judge. Maybe you find out that you're kind of a, a, a hypocrite in this area, and you're like quick to say, like, this person is this, and we're way better than this, and at least we don't go to church like this. And all that needs to get right before we take communion. This is why we don't do communion so just like every you know, month we're going to do communion. No. It's that holy. When we take communion, it's a holy moment. Remember where it started. Jesus knows what's coming. The, the mood in the room is not this happy-go-lucky, we're all at dinner mood. The mood is I'm going to the cross. I'm going to face those who are going to betray me, my friends, who are going to say they don't know me. And he has all this knowledge as he sits at the table. I don't find this whole uh, uh, mood being a, just a uh, happy-go-lucky one as much as a somber one. These are the last few moments I have with you before I have to face the things I have to face. And I don't know about you, anytime I've known that I've got to go face pain and punishment, it's been one of those moves like, let's just go party real quick before it gets bad. It's always been like, okay, let me get the courage, let me get the strength up to know, go take what I've got to go do. That's communion. So let's take a few minutes. If you need prayer, come. If you want to pray right where you're at. But make sure before we start taking the bread and we start taking the blood that you're right, that your heart's right. And then when we disperse, love someone this week, right? Because you came here, we get our heart right together. We, you know, as a family, we do this together, right? So we can encourage one another as we go out, right? I tell you all the time, if you're coming just for Sunday experience, just like, well, I just come to be filled up on Sunday, hey, you come to the wrong place, man. We are Christians all week. And you should be reading and praying all week long. And when you come here, it's really just iron sharpening iron. We're right here together. Your sword, it's the same sword that I have. It's the same. So we're together. We lock arms. We're together. I'm not out there so far ahead. Yeah, I might help you in where to go and how to lead and what to do and things like that as a pastor, but I'm going to tell you right now, I see us co-joined together. We march on together. We face stuff together. We are family. Not a church of families. One family. One God. One kingdom. One Lord.